Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. A man by the name of Anderson has said that the basic problem with our time is that we have become too cozy with death. He continued by saying that one of the basic problems with any culture is that it befriends death even when it appears to be an end to suffering and wrong and even when, it, when it's believed to be a doorway into a glorious life beyond. It is a tragic uh, indictment upon our culture that we have one of our most recognizable names is the name of a man who assists suicides. And even more tragic is the fact that he has a waiting list of people to assist him. To many people, death is the answer. It's the solution. Death is the solution to unwanted pregnancies. And so this year, a million more babies will be killed. A solution to an unwanted pregnancy. And on the other hand, a man who is so vehemently pro-life, his solution is to kill the aborters. And so a woman walks into a courtroom where a boy, where a man is being tried for molestation of her son, her solution is to take a pistol and to blow him away. Is death the answer? And so here is a boy, a teenager, who has so many problems he finds no answers. The only solution he sees is death. And so every 90 minutes in this country, some teenager will kill himself or herself. 
It has become the second leading cause of death among young people from the age of 15 to 25. And I listened to some ministers talk recently at a board meeting that I attended, and I heard one minister say, as he bewailed the problems in his church, our church is never going to do anything until we have a couple of more funerals. Death is the answer. And so here is a man with so many problems. He's just been fired from his job. How does he deal with that grief? He takes a gun and he blows his boss away and everybody who gets in the way. And a decision is made that is not agreed with by everybody. And an angry yell erupts, kill the umpire. And here is a person who threatens one's life or property and the crowd shouts, shoot him. And here is a heinous crime committed and an angry community cries, burn him, string him up. And here is a nation that is threatened by another nation and the solution is nuke him. I tell you, we've gotten too cozy with the grim reaper. Alexander Sanderson is the chief judge of the Court of Appeals in South Carolina. He spoke to the graduating class last spring at the University of South Carolina. His daughter was in that graduating class. And he told a story that happened to her when she was three years old. He said her pet turtle, Barney, died. And when he got home from work, he said she was crying. And my wife said, you're going to have to do something. I can't get her, I can't get her to stop crying. And so he sat down with her and he tried to console her. But he said there are some things that even an immature mind cannot understand. One of them is the mystery of life and death. He said, now I was a member of the legislature and I was a, an attorney practicing law, so he said, I ought to be able to handle this. And so he said, he began to reason with her. He said, well, we'll just go to the pet store and get another turtle. That didn't work. He said, there's some things even for a child that are non-transferable. So he said, I resorted to my lawyer tactics. He said, I created a diversion. He said, I'll tell you what let's do. We'll just have a funeral for Barney. And she said, well, what's a funeral? He said, well, it's kind of a celebration in honor of Barney's life. He said, we'll, we'll string some streamers and we'll bake a cake. And he said, it'd be kind of like a birthday party. And we'll invite all your friends and we'll celebrate Barney's life. He said, that worked immediately. All the tears dried up and she really, she really got into this party making. He said, while they were right in the middle of getting the party together, something strange happened. Barney began to move. Barney was alive. And he said, my daughter looked at Barney, and she could just see her party going out the window. <laughs> and so she said, he said, she looked at me and her three-year-old innocency and said, Dad, let's kill it. Is <laughs> um, death the answer? I heard the story of a woman who stepped out of her front door one day and saw one of these genie-looking bottles lying there, and she picked it up and rubbed it, and a genie popped out. 
said, Dear, this is your lucky day. I'm going to grant you three requests. Only one thing you need to know, that your husband has to have twice as much as you get. Now, her and her husband weren't really getting along too well, but she saw some real opportunity there. So she said, I want a million dollars. He said, okay, but your husband gets two. Poof, she got a million dollars. Poof, he got two. He said, what's the second request? She said, I want a stack of diamonds three feet high. Poof, she got a stack of diamonds three feet high. Poof, he got two stacks of diamonds three feet high. The genie said, now you need to remember now on your last request, your husband gets twice as much as you get. She said, I've thought it out. I want you to scare me half to death. (laughs) Is death the answer? Well, not according, we laugh at that, but there are some people who kill for less, I guarantee you. Is the solution death? No, not according to the New Testament. The New Testament does not picture death as humanity's great friend. The New Testament pictures death as humanity's greatest enemy. And the message of Easter is that that life is the counter to the pro-death view. The message of Easter is that God opts for life. That death is the world's answer to the problem, but life is heaven's answer to the problem. For it is without question the resurrected life becomes the dom- became the dominant characteristic of that early New Testament community. And the Easter faith of these disciples became the very essence on which the church was established. They lost so much on Friday. They got back so much on Sunday. For Easter gives us back ourselves. Who was Peter and John? Who was Matthew and Mary and Thomas? They were disciples of Jesus Christ and when He died, Something inside of them died as well. The editor of a large newspaper asked his daughter to write a feature on the great adventurer, David Livingston. He said, now I don't want you to write about this do-gooder because this editor had given up his faith a long time before. I don't want you to write about this humanitarian, this do-gooder. I want you to write about the man. I don't want to hear about his missionary exploits. I don't want to hear about his God. I want you to tell, write about the man. It didn't take her long to come back to say, Dad, you can't do that. This man and his faith are synonymous. You can't talk about David Livingston without talking about Jesus. That was so of these disciples. He was their life. He was their identity. You can't even think about Simon Peter without thinking about Jesus. He taught them how to feel, how to think. He taught them how to understand about God. And one day when the crowds dispelled, he looked around and said to his disciples, Will you also go away? And they said to to him, We don't have anywhere else to go. You are our life. You are our identity. You are what makes us live. So when he died, 
They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like pupils without a teacher. They were like slaves without a master. The Russian writer by the name of Alexis Peshnov was orphaned when he was five. His mother sent him to live with his grandparents, and she remarried. His grandfather hated him, abused him. He lived in terrible abuse and poverty. He even changed his name to Maxim Gorky. Maximum bitterness. Gorky is, means bitterness in Russian. And he lived in absolute bitterness. And one day he picked up a book written by Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, who wrote about faith and love and hope. And he began to open up his life to love and to literature. One day he was walking along the beach and he saw Tolstoy and he said to one of his friends, as long as that man is alive, I'll never be an orphan. That's the way these people felt. As long as he was alive, they would never be orphaned. The word means bereft, without an inheritance. Then he died and the Apostle Paul said, if he's still dead... Your faith is in vain. You have nothing to live for. And then he began to appear. First in the tomb, at the tomb, then in the upper room, and then into a, into that, to that multitude of people, he showed himself alive. And these people began to live again. They, saw, they got themselves back. They discovered who they were. They became apostles and martyrs. And they went up and down the street shouting, Vivit, Vivit, he is alive, he is alive. We have ourselves back. And Easter gives us back those we loved and lost. Those you've buried in Highland Cemetery or other graves around the world, he gives them back to us. Now there are some non-believing theologians who say that when the New Testament talks about eternal life, he's talking about the fact that those that we've loved and lost will live in our memories forever. I don't know about you, but that's not enough for me. And so there's King Lear with his little Cordelia in his arms in one of Shakespeare's tragedies. And he's holding this lifeless child in his arms and he wails, howl, howl. And he turns to people around him and calls them men of stone because they don't see his anguish. Can you feel his bitterness, his pain? Can you know his sorrow? And then something strange happens. A feather falls down on the mouth of little Cordelia and for a moment it looks like it moves. It looks like it, she's breathing again, but he knows she's not. And so in despair he cries, Thou wilt not come again. Never, 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 never. Five times he said it. Can you feel that despair? If you've ever lost a loved one, you know it. If you've ever buried a child, if you've ever buried a spouse, you know it. And then he began to speak first to Mary 
And she knew it was Jesus, and she didn't understand all that was going on, but she understood this much, that you never lose your lover forever. And when he stepped out of the bowels of the earth, when he stepped away from the womb of death, he carried in his arms every person you have loved and lost or will love and lose. And I'll tell you what would be a good exercise for you today. On Easter Day, you might look at your loved one, your spouse. Just glance at him or her now. Look across this room this morning and find the faces of your children. Look next to you to that, that friend you love very much and say to yourselves, I will love you forever and forever. Now that is not some dream wish that we have concocted up so that it will dull the pain of death. It's not that we want them back. It's that He wants them back. And so He went into the grave and grappled with death. And when He came out, He brought everyone with, with Him we've loved and lost and gave them back to us. In about a fourth grade class of 19 students, there was a little boy with a terminal illness. His name was Jeremy. He had something bad wrong with him. He drooled all the time. He became a source of, of mockery of some of the students, a source of problem to the teacher, Jeremy. Two weeks before Easter, the teacher said, Now I want all of you to bring to class some of those little plastic eggs and have something inside of it that suggests the meaning of Easter. And so there were 19 eggs there, plastic eggs. She began to open them up. One of them had inside some grass. That's a symbol of new life. Another had in there some flowers. That's a symbol of new life. She opened up this plastic egg, was empty. Didn't take her long to figure out that was Jeremy's egg. So she hurriedly went to, to the next one. He held up his hand and said, Teacher, aren't you going to talk about my egg? And he said, she said, Well, Jeremy, there wasn't anything in your egg. She said, Oh, well, that's, that's the way the grave was. Jesus' grave. It was empty. And during the recess, that teacher had to find a place to cry. Thirty days later, when Jeremy died, on the top of that casket were 19 empty plastic eggs. He gives us back the ones we love and lose. One final thought, please. He gives us back our faith. Now I know and I testify to the fact that sometimes because of circumstances and the things of life we begin to lose our faith. Sometimes the clouds get so thick and it rains so long we begin to doubt. I do and you do. And then we come to a day like this and we celebrate the most actual and factual event of history and somehow we get our faith back 
For the message of Easter is not that there is no death. The message of Easter is not that you will not die. The message of Easter is not that faith is easy. The message of Easter is that God has etched a word in the darkness and that word is nevertheless. So when life gives way to death, when wrong, when right gives way to wrong, when pain takes the place of pleasure, when good is swallowed up by evil, nevertheless is God's word. And Ibsen the great dramatist, one of history's great debaters, used to take people's arguments and he would say, now he said this, that's correct. He said this, that's logical. And then when he got it all together, he would drop a bombshell with one word, but nevertheless. And when he died, they leaned their head over their ear, over to his mouth to see if they could hear what he was saying when he died. And he said one word, nevertheless. And so they gathered in that upper room not to celebrate his resurrection, but to wail his crucifixion. And they went to that early, they went to that grave early in the morning, not to crown a risen Lord, but to anoint a dead teacher. And they trudged on their way to Emmaus, not in joyful expectation, but in absolute despair. Nevertheless, nevertheless, and when he stepped out of that tomb, our faith in what Jesus said begins to live again. And our confidence in the triumph, ultimate triumph of good over evil is restored again. Fierce though the fiend may fight, long though the angels hide, we know truth and right has the universe on its side. And one great theologian said, there is nothing in those early records to indicate that this turn of events was anything but unexpected. And what we know this morning is this, that what God accomplished in Jesus Christ and wrought in His disciples because of His resurrection, He can do for us whatever comes nevertheless. After 30 years, after World War II, a man surrendered. 30 years he'd been hiding in the jungles, of the Philippine jungles, living off the land, thinking a war was still going on. And 30 years after the war was over, he finally surrendered, and somebody told him, he said, well, the war was over 30 years ago. And the man said simply, Nobody ever told me. When Leslie Weatherhead was dying, he wrote his sister and said, It's Easter, what a tragedy. I have no voice to shout, he is risen. Perhaps the greater tragedy, he wrote, would be to come to Easter, have a voice, and not shout it. Up and down these ways of life, we need to say it regardless of what comes or what has happened, nevertheless. In 1847, 
Alexander Simpson, the scientist, discovered chloroform and forever changed the face of modern medicine. And one day, speaking to a group of medical students, one of them asked, Sir, what is the greatest discovery you've ever made? Thinking he would talk about some scientific discovery, he answered this, The greatest discovery I've ever made is the love of God. And when pressed for an explanation, he said, When my little girl was dying, I opened up my black bag and I looked in it and I found nothing that could save her. So when she died, they put her name on the tomb, the date of her birth, the date of her death, and one word, nevertheless. Is death the answer? I have a voice to shout it, not so. Life is the answer. And the resurrected life God wrought and accomplished in everyone around Him is available to your need and your faith. Let's pray. Our Father, you have said, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. I pray that we'll expect nothing more and settle for nothing less. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray. I wonder if there's someone, look, here this morning who would need to come, who would like to come, who would be willing to come and say, I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I want life, eternal life. You've never come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. We invite you to come. Maybe you come this morning to say, I want to join this fellowship. I want to put my life in this church I want to live in the much more that's available to me. We invite you to come while we stand to sing. On the first word, you step out and come.